The, uh, the scriptural reference is in Matthew 21, 23 to 32. And when he had entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question, and I will tell you, tell me the answer. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, if we save from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they will all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two sons did the father, did the will of the father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prophets prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you for John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him and even when you saw it you did not afterward change your minds and believe him Good, af good afternoon, church family. Good afternoon. Let's pray. Lord, in a season of both joy and sorrow, of pain and celebration, God, we come into your presence asking for your help. Search us, O oh Lord, and test our hearts. Try us and know our thoughts. See if there will be any grievous way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. Who can discern his errors? Declare us innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over us. Then we shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. The word authority is one of those loaded words. What do you think of when you hear the word authority? Maybe you think of authoritarian regimes like the government of North Korea, 
Or maybe you think of the term heavy-handed authority, or you think of the abuse of authority. Well, it's in our human nature not to want others to tell us what to do or not to do. In the 1960s, during the time of the Vietnam War, when the Watergate scandal rocked the Nixon presidency, a slogan emerged. And that slogan was this, question authority. Question authority. Now, on one level, it's a good thing to question authority. We need to be able to think and discern, discern between good and evil. But on another level, it's actually quite dangerous. It's quite dangerous when human beings, fallen, broken, sinful human beings, think that we are the ultimate source of authority. The Dalai Lama, he's a world-famous monk and leader of Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, in Tibetan Buddhism, they believe in reincarnation. So the Dalai Lama believes he's the, you know, when the Dalai Lama dies, comes back again, re is reborn. And this is what the Dalai Lama said. One thing I want to make clear, as far as my own rebirth is concerned, the final authority is myself and no one else. And ever since the fall of humanity, when sin entered into our world, authority has been problematic for all of us as human beings. When Adam and Eve sinned, they essentially replaced God's authority with their own authority. And ever since then, human beings have tried to do the same thing, to overthrow God's authority and establish our own authority in his place. But Jesus Christ holds out a different way, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. He teaches us to relate to ultimate authority in a way where we relate to him as the ultimate authority and not ourselves. And we're going to see from our passage this afternoon that citizens of the kingdom embrace the authority of the king. Citizens of the kingdom embrace the authority of the king. Last Sunday, we had a chance to experience Palm Sunday when Tim showed us all the different realms of authority that King Jesus possesses. This includes Jesus as Lord of creation, Lord of religion, Lord over sickness and disease, Lord over grace. And Jesus, on that Palm Sunday, he entered Jerusalem, he entered the temple, and then he began to, cl to cleanse the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and drove out those who were buying and selling, saying, my house should be a house of prayer. And after that dramatic show of authority, he returned to the temple to teach. And it's at that moment when he finds his authority being challenged because Jesus is a, he's a public figure. He's doing his ministry in public and now he's subject to public scrutiny. So look with me to chapter 21 of Matthew. Matthew chapter 21, we'll look at verse, starting from verse 23. Matthew 21, starting from verse 23. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? The chief priests and the elders have decided to question authority, decided to challenge Jesus and his authority. To understand why they would do something like this, we need to understand the background, who these people are. The chief priests and the elders are the political elites in Israel. They got their power from the Roman overlords, and so they had to walk a tightrope. 
On one hand, they had to keep the Romans happy because the Romans are the ones who gave them their power and their position. But on the other hand, they had to keep the people happy because they were the ones in charge. They were the spiritual leaders. They had authority over the temple, over sacrifices, over the law. They were in charge. And these people who are in charge in Israel, they feel threatened in their authority. They know that Jesus isn't some village preacher. So they challenge him. They say, who do you think you are? Who gives you the right to do the things that you do? Who gives you the authorization to do these things? Who do you answer to? What are your credentials? So how would Jesus answer this, these questions, this challenge to his authority? How would he answer? How would he justify his ministry? Well, the Gospel of Matthew all along has been building a case for Jesus to be the king, that Jesus is the king, the king of Israel, the one with authority, not from a human source, but from a divine source. The Gospel of Matthew opens with the genealogy of Jesus, showing that he is descended from David, the king, that he is the son of David. And this king Jesus receives worship from wise men from the east. And in chapters 5 through 7, King Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. He teaches with authority, unlike the scribes. And in chapters 8 and 9, Jesus backs up his authoritative teaching with authoritative actions. And later on, he explains that he is the Lord of salvation, that by his power and authority, the kingdom of heaven is given to some but others are excluded. The kingdom of heaven is hidden from others. This this phrase, greater than, is something we should pay attention to because Matthew goes to great pains to show that Jesus is greater than Moses, greater than the law, greater than sacrifices, greater than Solomon, greater than Jonah, greater than the temple. And so the takeaway, as summarized by scholar R.T. France in in a quote I've shared before, but does a great job encapsulating what we need to understand is this. Jesus is quite simply different from other men. He can teach in a way that their scribes cannot match. He issues authoritative commands to evil spirits and they come out, to illnesses and they are cured, to the elements and they acknowledge his control. He calls men and women to give him an undivided allegiance and they leave everything and follow him. So Jesus is no mere village preacher. He is the son of God. He is the son of David. He is the king of kings and Lord over all. And disciples of Jesus Christ recognize this. Citizens of the kingdom embrace the authority of the king. And the chief priests and the scribes, they aren't stupid. They see the miracles. They hear the teaching. Deep down, they know who Jesus is. They know he carries divine authority. A Pharisee named Nicodemus in John chapter 3 admits what none of the other leaders want to admit. He comes to Jesus in the middle of the night and says, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher come from God. Because no one could do the things that you do unless God were with him. 
They recognize he has divine authority. And so why do these chief priests and elders ask this question? Are they genuinely curious? Well, they're asking this question because they want to set a trap for Jesus. They want to set a trap. If Jesus says, oh, my authority is divine, well, they can accuse him of blasphemy and turn the people against him. Well, if Jesus says, my authority is from man, well, then they could also turn the people against him. So they've set this trap for Jesus, and they're hoping that Jesus will walk right into it. So let's see how Jesus responds in verses 24 and 25. Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? We see Jesus answers a question with a question. And this is actually something common in Jewish debates. Jesus isn't trying to evade the question but he's trying to approach this question from a different angle. He's trying to fly under the radar, try to fly under the missile defense systems that these leaders have set up. And and it's often the case that a question really isn't a question. There's something deeper behind this question. Last week, I was at 69th Street Terminal uh, sharing the gospel with our outreach team, and I had a chance to talk with a young man named Leon. Leon was a self-professed atheist. But we got into talking about sin and the law, and he admitted that he's lied before, that he's stolen, that he's looked with lust, that if God were to judge him by God's perfect standard on the day of judgment, he'd be found guilty. And so I I pressed him on that point, but then he diverted the conversation and asked, "How how could we really trust the Bible since it's been written thousands of years ago? How can you trust the Bible? So then I took a moment to go through the historical reliability of the Bible, how we have manuscripts that are dated within one generation of when these events actually occur. We've got the Dead Sea Scrolls that are thousands of years old that prove that the Old Testament that we have today is the same Old Testament we had back then. But he wasn't really interested in all that evidence. It wasn't so much a lack of evidence on trusting the Bible, but the lack of desire the lack of desire to trust the Bible. And it's the same thing we see with these leaders. There's something behind the question that they're asking. It's not so much a lack of evidence that Jesus is divine. We've seen evidence all along. It's the lack of desire to believe that evidence. And so Jesus is going to expose the true condition of these leaders by asking them about the baptism of John. The baptism of John would have taken place years ago, early on in Jesus' ministry. So we're going to go back to Matthew chapter 3, verses 5 through 8. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. This is John. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. John proclaimed a baptism of repentance. He was calling people to own up to their own sin. 
He was pointing out specific ways they had fallen short. And he might have preached something like this. You need to admit that you've done wrong, that you've broken God's commands, that you've fallen short, that you haven't loved God with all of your heart, that you haven't loved your neighbor, that you haven't been truthful, you haven't been content, but you've done the opposite. He might have pointed out to people that you've twisted the truth. You've coveted what belonged to other people. And John might have pointed out that the wages of sin is death and that there is wrath to come. There is judgment to come because of sin. And that means every sinful word will be brought to account. That every sinful thought will be exposed on the day of judgment and every sinful action will be punished. That means who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when God appears? And so John would have warned about the great and awesome day of the Lord and called people to repent now, to turn from sins now in light of that coming day of judgment. But what John would have preached then is what God commands us to do today. So I have to ask you, you're here with us this afternoon. Have you repented of your sins? Have you turned from living for yourself in light of the coming day of judgment? Have you placed your faith in the one who can forgive you of all of your sins? If this were your final day on planet Earth, would you be ready? Would you be ready? We've had two church members recently pass away. You all know Beverly Greenslade and Ron Macon. Beverly and Ron were ready. They weren't afraid of death because they were ready to see God. They were ready to be with Jesus. They were ready to enter into heavenly glory. But how about you? If you haven't yet embraced the authority of King Jesus... We call upon you to embrace Him today, surrender to Him today. So the message that John proclaimed was the same message that Jesus proclaimed. Jesus proclaimed, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The same message, proclaiming the same Savior. Their ministries had the same authority. And so Jesus was basically saying, to these chief priests and elders, if you can answer the question about my messenger, where did he come from, then you'll have the answer to your question. Where, did, where does my authority come from? So let's look at verses 25 through 27. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it amongst themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We don't know. We do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So these enemies of Jesus, they're, they're shining the spotlight on Jesus, questioning his authority, challenging his authority, 
But now Jesus is turning the spotlight on them. He's making it clear that these leaders answer to him. He doesn't answer to them. It's always been that way and always will be. So we see this subtle but dramatic shift in the conversation. At one moment, it's the leaders interrogating Jesus. And then at the next moment, it's Jesus interrogating them. He's asking them, what do you think of me? What do you think of me? Sorry. It's a reminder for us here that what we think of Jesus has eternal consequences. Do you believe that he is the Son of God and King of kings and Lord of creation? Or do you believe he's nothing more than a great teacher, nothing more than an enlightened spiritual guide? Do you believe that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the one who is the perfect sacrifice, who alone can take away our sins? Or do you believe he was just a great moral example who was an unfortunate victim of oppression? See, what you do with Jesus, what you believe about Jesus, will determine whether you will be with Jesus one day. And citizens of the kingdom embrace the authority of the king. You can't have one without the other. You can't be a citizen of the kingdom unless you've embraced the authority of the king. You have both of them or you have none of them. And so Jesus answers this question with a question. And so how will these leaders answer the question that Jesus has posed to them? They have to deliberate because they're not ready for what hit them. They have to take a time out. So they confer on the sidelines and they consider their options. So what if they say heaven? What if they say heaven? Well, we know that these leaders refuse to be baptized by John. They refuse to submit themselves to God's purposes, to admit they were sinful and that they needed a Messiah. So they can't say heaven. They've already rejected John. But what if they say man? That was the other option. Well, the people know that John is a prophet. The people knew their Old Testament. They knew what to look for in a prophet's resume. You can almost imagine a little checklist that the people have. Preached a message of repentance. Check. Commanded people to return to God or face dire consequences. Check. Didn't care about what other people thought. Check. Willing to suffer and even die as a martyr. Check. These leaders, they know that they can't say man because the people would turn against them. So what are they left with? They say, we don't know. We don't know. The truth is staring them in the face, but they run like cowards. It was their job to know. These are the chief priests and elders. These were the spiritual leaders for Israel. But in reality, they weren't, it wasn't like they didn't know. They knew, but they weren't interested in the truth. They were more interested in avoiding the implications of the truth. And because both answers, heaven or man, they weren't convenient, they just refused to answer the question. They'd rather hold on to their power and authority than to submit to the authority of King Jesus. Now, before we're too hard on these religious leaders, we need to take a closer look at our own hearts. 
How often do we dodge the truth because we want to avoid the implications of the truth? Let's think about the commands of King Jesus. The commands of King Jesus are truth, but it's often easier for us to ignore or evade or downplay his commands. Jesus commands us to love him more than we love our father or mother, brother or sister, even more than our own life. But how often do many of us want to hang on to one area of sin in our life or one area we don't want to give up because it's too hard? Jesus commands husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave him up for, for her. But how many of us husbands give in to the same patterns of laziness or anger or selfishness? Jesus commands wives to submit to your own husbands and follow the leadership of your husbands. But how many people want to write that off as outdated for our modern age and refuse to submit to the authority of King Jesus? In fact, the Sermon on the Mount is full of commands given by King Jesus. He commands us to love our enemies, tear out your eye, cut off your hand, cut off your foot if it causes you to sin. Say what you mean and mean what you say. Store up treasures in heaven, not treasures on earth. Trust God with your future. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And on and on. The first sin committed by Adam and Eve in the garden, and every, since, every sin since then can be thought of as a rejection of the authority of God. Did God really say you shall not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Did God really say this or that? Did God really say, how are you tempted to fill in the blank? Church, we need to reflect on our own hearts before we pass judgment on these religious leaders. We need to reflect on what causes anxiety or anger in our own hearts because those things show us who or what are the most important things in our lives. I know for my, for my own life, I can be so quick to criticize or critique my wife. I can say, why did you buy this? Or do we really need this? Or did you use a coupon when you bought this? Because I need to have control. I need things to be done my way. Or when my kids don't perform to what I want them to perform to, or they don't jump through the hoops I expect them to, I can just get so impatient because things aren't convenient like I want them to. But how about you? How about you? If we're honest with ourselves, our flesh finds it so difficult to submit to the supreme authority of King Jesus. Obedience is hard. That's why, church, we need a fresh filling of the Spirit of God. We need an outpouring of grace. Otherwise, our sinful nature wants to reject the authority of King Jesus. That's why God's Word says, not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit. And church, citizens of the kingdom embrace the authority of the King, but we can only do it with the power of God, with the Spirit of God dwelling within us. Well, at this point in the narrative, Jesus could have walked away. These spiritual leaders have clearly disqualified themselves as leaders, but he's not done yet. 
He's going to give them another chance. He wants to plead with them to repent and submit to his authority. Let's continue in verses 28 through 30. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. We see a family farm, a father with two sons. And this word translated as son is actually the Greek word for child. Child. It's a term of intimacy and affection. This isn't a father who's far off and distant, but a, a father who loves his sons and cares and provides for their needs. And he's asking his child to do only what they're expected to do, share in the family responsibilities. So the father goes to the first child and tells him to work in the vineyard. And this first child refuses, so he disobeys and dishonors his father. But notice afterward, he changes his mind and went. He had a change of mind, a change of heart. This first child repented. So instead of dishonoring and disobeying, he turns around and honors and obeys his father. It's a surprising twist. And then the father says the exact same thing to the other child. He says, child, go work in the vineyard today. And the second child says, I go, sir, but he didn't. So the second child says the right answer, but fails to do the right thing. He says he's going to honor the father, but by his action, chooses to dishonor and disobey his father. And then in verse 31, which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Let's pause there for a second. Pause there for a moment. Now the religious leaders have walked right into the trap that they tried to spring for Jesus because they can't help but answer the question because the answer is so obvious. They don't need to deliberate. They don't need to think. They don't need to say, we don't know. They reflexively answer and say, the first, the one who actually did the will of the Father. And that means the second didn't do the will of the Father. And the stunner is Jesus says, you guys, you chief priests and elders, you guys are the second child, the disobedient child. Let's continue in verse 31. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. The tax collectors and prostitutes are represented by that first child. The first child who didn't care about obeying their father, didn't care about loving God or purity or living according to the law of God. But these prostitutes and tax collectors later on repent. They change their mind. When they hear the preaching of John the Baptist, John the Baptist they confess their sins. They get baptized. They turn their lives around. These people are in the kingdom, citizens of the kingdom, not because they're good, but because they're forgiven. 
But these religious leaders are represented by the second child. They claim to do the will of God. They say, I go, sir. They give all the right answers, but they don't do the right thing. Talk is cheap. Jesus shows if you talk the talk, you have to walk the walk. And this is something Jesus has taught all throughout the Gospel of Matthew. For instance, in places like Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, and then will I declare to them, I never knew you. So these chief priests and elders, they don't do the will of the Father. They don't submit to the authority of Christ. They don't obey the command to repent and believe the gospel. And even after seeing the the power of the gospel to transform these tax collectors and prostitutes, they still refuse to submit themselves to King Jesus. So Jesus condemns them. He says these these tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you or instead of, instead of you. And there's a warning here for those of us who, who think that we are religious. It's a warning given by commentator Leon Morris. The conventionally religious who cause no scandal and go through the outward motions of religious observances can fail to respond to the demand for wholehearted repentance and complete dedication to the service of God. As you've heard us say here before, the church is not a museum for saints, but a hospital for sinners. Jesus Christ came to seek and to save the lost, those who are broken, those who are messed up, those who carry guilt and shame because of their sins. The church of Jesus Christ opens wide its doors for all sinners. It doesn't matter what kind of sin or how long you've been sinning, what kind of guilt you carry, what kind of shame you wish to hide. In the book, Mission at Nuremberg, the author chronicles the ministry of a Lutheran pastor named Henry Garrick. Henry Garrick was an army chaplain during World War II. He tended to the souls of wounded and dying soldiers in London. And at the end of the war, he was given his most difficult assignment. He was called upon to serve as the chaplain for 21 Nazi leaders awaiting trial at Nuremberg. The American government wanted the spiritual needs of these men met even as they awaited, awaited trial and their eventual execution. But people told this chaplain, people told Henry Garrick, don't shake these men's hands, hands, don't shake their hands. But Henry Garrick said, if they are to believe my message, I have to be friendly to them. And that's what Garrick did. He shook their hands. He got to know them, and he preached the gospel to them. And according to Garrick, five, possibly seven, out of these 21 Nazi leaders came to saving faith in Jesus Christ before they died. In fact, Ribbentrop, who was Hitler's foreign minister, he said this, he put his trust in the blood of the Lamb that takes away the sin of the world. 
the scandal of grace, the scandal of the cross, that there, is that there will be some, some people who are the most evil people we could ever imagine, people who sat on top of the Third Reich. They will be in heaven, while many of the people they tormented won't. And that's Jesus' point in this parable. It doesn't matter how wicked or how evil or how far gone you might be. It doesn't matter whether the world completes you right, completely writes you off as unredeemable. If you or anyone submits to the authority of King Jesus through repentance and faith, you're in the kingdom of God. And that's good news for sinners like you and me. That's why Risen Hope Church welcomes all, because Jesus Christ welcomes all. But there's a warning here as well. There's a warning. If you can't, ex- can't accept the idea that there will be wicked but forgiven people in heaven, then you're in danger of being just like those religious leaders. You see, those religi- religious leaders thought they were somehow good enough, that they deserved heaven, but others didn't. Others were disqualified and beyond hope. These leaders thought they were good while everybody else was bad. These leaders refused to repent and surrender to King Jesus because they failed to see their desperate need. But we as disciples of Jesus Christ, we understand our desperate need. We understand that we're really no different than the worst of sinners. We understand our own hearts. We understand the depravity of our own minds and our hearts, the wickedness of our ways. And we embrace grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is open for all sinners who repent and believe. So church, as citizens of the kingdom, doesn't matter whether how wicked or how evil or how far gone or how others might perceive you. Citizens of the kingdom embrace the authority of the king. Let's pray. Lord, search our mind and hearts. Where are ways that we don't want to submit to your authority? Where are ways where pride and self-righteousness have taken root and we've begun to think of ourselves as better than others? Where are ways that we would just rather hold on to sin rather than surrender everything to King Jesus? Oh God, shine the light by your Spirit into our hearts that we might, as we heard earlier today, confess our sins because you are faithful and just and in confessing, And forsaking them, we will find righteousness in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.